human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with writer and professor May Al-Nakib. Her essays and award-winning book of short stories, The Hidden Light of Objects, tackle big issues of war and family, as well as poignant everyday moments of longing and connection often overlooked. A cosmopolitan life of living and studying around the world has brought her back home to Kuwait, where she teaches literature at Kuwait University. This patchwork quilt of experiences, both internal and external, have led May to some deep truths about empathy in the intimacy of our creativity, the rigor of academia, and how we might pass on compassion to the next generation. Please enjoy Episode 8, May Al-Nakib on the Empathy of Words Written and Spoken. All right, I am so happy to have May Al-Nakib with me today. May, hello. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Um, I would love, if you don't mind, uh, introducing yourself however you see fit to the listeners. Okay, um, I am a writer uh, of fiction and also a professor of English and Comparative Literature at Kuwait University. Um, I, I guess I think of myself in those two kind of schizophrenic ways. <laughs> so. <laughs> What makes you say that they're schizophrenic? I think they seem very They do and they don't. You know, it's funny. I always, um, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. I think from, I, I just don't remember not ever, ever feeling that I wanted to be anything other than a writer. I think the first time I picked up Harriet the Spy, that was it. Ah! Oh, kept oh my a God. And wrote obsessively. Is that, is that a book you love too? Yes, I can't believe that you started with that there. I loved Harriet the Spy. I identified with her so much. And actually the sequel, there was a sequel to yes. Harriet the Spy. The Long Summer. Yeah, The Long Secret, The Long Secret. Oh, the Long Secret, that's right, that's right, um, The Long Secret. I loved it even more than the original, and I read it every summer of my life growing up. Both of those are sitting there on my bedstand. Oh, my, my God. And, and, and I mean, that was it. And, and I started keeping a diary after reading Harriet the Spy. I think I was 10, maybe. When, and, and I knew even before that. I, when, I, when I learned how to write my name, I think I, in preschool, M-A, and I used to spell my name M-A-Y at the time, and I would, this was in the U.S., M-A-Y, mm -hmm. and I was so disappointed that my name was only three letters long. <laughs> I just wanted more letters, and it was after that. I just, you know, I've always, I've always known that I wanted to write. And then the thing is in Kuwait at the time, I mean, I went to, I went to um, an American school in Kuwait, a high school, the elementary high school, and then I went to Kuwait University for my undergraduate um, degree and in English literature. But because that was only because I didn't know that creative writing or writing fiction was a career option. Mm -hmm. And the closest thing to me was to study literature, which is not, is not at all the same thing. I mean, they're close. It's wonderful to study literature, to be a reader. I really believe that to be a good writer, really what you need to be is a reader. And um, so, 
so I, I studied literature, but then that, this is where the paths, my, my two paths kind of diverged because really studying literature then took me very much away from writing fiction. Um, we had no option of creative writing. It's not like, you know, in the States, you have these various creative writing programs and you can do that. That just wasn't an option. And so I went from a bachelor's degree in literature and then I went to the US. I went to Brown University and got my PhD also in literature. So it, my, I studied post-colonial literature there. And then you're on this kind of academic path. I came back, I started teaching literature at Kuwait University um, in, in both the undergraduate and graduate programs here. And you go to conferences, you write and publish papers, and you do all of that, and you try to get promoted and on and on and on. And that eats up 10 years. And suddenly you're like, what happened to the fiction? And it was funny, it was after I, um, after I, uh, it, you know, after I came back to Kuwait and, and, and was, in, you know, I got hired by Kuwait University and started teaching, it was then that I felt like I could turn to writing fiction again. And I started writing short stories. It wasn't that I had ever stopped, but it really did, it didn't have the same kind of focus, not the kind of focus you need to really write fiction. So it was only after I sort of felt like, okay, now I'm done. Now I can do the thing I really wanted to. <laughs> and then I started writing and then I worked on a, you know, a short stories collection and um, I wrote The Hidden Light of Objects and um, that was published in 2014. So it took me a very long time to put those stories together and to publish them. And Which, by the way, I, um, I have started reading it um, and I'm just enamored right away. And okay. I see, I mean, for lots of reasons, not, not the first of which being that, that um, my relationship to objects and collecting objects and, and their meaning as talismans in my life is super important to me. Um, yeah. But the, the brain that, it, that, that you must write from to write fiction like that has to be so incredibly free, I think. Um, and I imagine that that's a very different brain from academia and from uh, studying others' words. And so I wonder about that switch that you have to make internally between those two jobs. That is such a, a really precise question. I, and, and it really, to that word freedom for me means so much. Uh, it, I actually have goosebumps as I'm saying this because to write, for me to be able to write fiction, the thing that I need most is a sense of complete freedom. Mm -hmm. And this it's something that in the days of Harriet the Spy, when you think about Harriet, what she had was in a sense, the freedom to move. You know, I always think of Harriet the Spy as moving, moving around, observing, watching, writing, looking. Um, and and I, I always feel like I'm kind of pushing, I always feel like I'm pushing against everything in order to be able to write and then everything gets in the way including academe and so sometimes i love there's a lot there are a lot of things that i love about academe and i love teaching and you know all kinds of things i even like the i like the brain work and the precision involved in uh doing academic analysis literary analysis and all of that but it is very different than writing fiction and for me the sort of the the condition of to write is is freedom and it is so precious and so hard to capture and so that it, that's why it always takes me so long to write because I, I have I haven't had really the privilege of time um, or the freedom to kind of use time in the ways that I want I want to use and I feel like I kind of 
academe, although I, again, I am really eternally grateful for what it has done to my brain and the kinds of things that I've, I've been able to, to gain from study, which I really um, appreciate and, and enjoy. But something else is lost, and, and that is precisely that freedom to write and the freedom, the, the mental freedom that you need. Um, there's a line from Hitchcock, which I've always loved, is this idea that you need a clear horizon to be able to work. And I, I, I really, I, I feel that whether it's, you know, I just need this kind of sense of clarity and freedom and openness to be able to do creative work. And that's hard, you know, that's hard for, for, for everybody. It's a privilege and it's really, it's something that I don't take for granted, but it's not, it's something I fight for. I really do. Sure. I mean, I, I do, I, I, I appreciate that you recognize it as a privilege and I would, I would counter that and say that it's everybody's birthright to have the freedom to create really authentically from the center of themselves. And I think that the way our world is constructed um, discourages that. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, this is a, a show about empathy and I feel like you are the perfect person to speak to because you can look at it from so many different facets. And I, and I want to start, um, by asking you about empathy in your, in your writing work specifically in, in the process of it and in the writing itself, how do you find that empathy plays a role? Well, the, the interesting thing for me is really that it's, it's sort of when I think about fiction in general, apart from my own writing, but just fiction in general, one of the things that I think fiction does best is to cultivate empathy. Because more than almost any other art form, I would argue, fiction is the kind of medium that allows you or allows a reader to step in, um, really occupy a character or a place very closely. So you're almost, you're, you know, you, there's something about the way we read and the way our brains process language and how we can get absorbed. It's very, very different than film, I think, which has its own um, really fantastic qualities and you can get absorbed in a certain way. But I always feel with film, it is much more directed. Whereas I feel in fiction, again, the word freedom, the reader has the freedom to be taken over by what it is that they're reading. But you put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Somebody, you know, it can be someone completely unlike you, not even necessarily somebody that you like, qualities that you like. But in fiction, you get to empathize. I, I really feel that um, even when I teach, you know, when I teach literature with my students, it's one of the things where they, you know, they're reading, let's say, a writer from Algeria. They're like, well, what, what is this really has nothing to do with us. And the part, part of the point of my classes is always to try to have students begin to make connections between the things that they think are completely unrelated to themselves and to their lives and link those to something that is in fact connected to themselves and to their lives. And part of the process of, for me, everything I do in teaching is really about bringing, bringing that connection to them, making it really um, material so that they can connect. And so empathy then in literature is generally, I think, the thing that it does best. Um, for me, when I write, it's funny, I empathize with my character is that just is something that happens without my necessarily thinking about it too consciously. The thing that I don't do is think about the reader very much, mm -hmm. at least not at the beginning. 
Um, I think when you're sort of dealing with um, things like whether something works or a form works or there are things going on here that maybe confuse the reader, that I think at a later stage, but at the very, very beginning, it's really very much about me and the characters and much less about me or the characters and the reader. And then when I, on the other hand, when I'm teaching literature, it is very, very much about the book and the reader and the kinds of, and the, the empathy that can be generated there. But I do, again, think that literature is the place where empathy is cultivated almost best of all. Yeah, I love that. I never thought about uh, film versus, uh, versus fiction in that way. And it's true because as a writer, which I'm a writer myself, that um, it requires you to get really, really intimate with what you're writing. Like so intimate that, as you say, you turn off the idea of the audience. And I've had um, worked with this book coach who would ask me, I mean, I don't write fiction. I write, I write personal essays, um, which is a different kind of uh, intimacy. But she would say, you know, who, who are you writing this for? And it almost paralyzed me because I couldn't think about that. It's a different kind of like you have to get really really quiet inside of yourself and shut out anybody else's ideas in order to like really let it flow the way it wants to i really think that that's true because again i think that that dampens your again the freedom that you mentioned at the beginning when you're worried about what um somebody might say how you might be judged and i, I mean for me in kuwait there's always also the fear not necessarily fear i really don't feel afraid but just the sense that, well, what, what could happen, you know, what might, how might, how might the, the, how might society respond, but even more worryingly, how might authorities respond? I mean, my, my short story collection was bizarrely banned in- I read that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely bizarre because it was, you know, it was published in 2014, so it took three to four years for people to decide that it was, I don't know, offensive or whatever. I mean, it's one among over 4,000 books, so it's not the only one. It was just kind of a strange um, move on the part of the Ministry of Information to start banning books left, right, and center. Uh, I, I was banned alongside really wonderful books, so <laughs> it's quite a privilege in a way, <laughs> an honor, a badge of honor, but um, but in any case, I never, as I was writing Hidden Light and even my novel, which uh, I've, I've just recently completed, I never really thought especially about that, the fear that or the, the worry that um, that authorities might be judging or people might be judging or what are people going to think. But that's that you're right that that especially when you write something like memoir or personal essay, that is very hard to keep aside because you do worry about, I think people, especially people you care about, and if they're somehow entangled in what it is that you're writing, there is that kind well, of feeling you know, that you don't want to hurt or offend anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the difference between being, like speaking authentically from yourself and marketing yourself. There's a left brain and right brain, they're entirely different. Um, yeah. But um, I, I want, uh, wait, I was gonna ask you something else uh, about that. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll come back to it because I just have so many thoughts. Um, I want to ask you about being a person who has lived in um, multiple parts of the world, very, very different parts of the world. And if you can speak to how that has informed your empathy uh, as a person. I think, yeah, I, I do think that that is a very important part of how I see the world and how I connect with 
with others um, is the this the sense not only because I myself was um, I mean I was born in Kuwait and then I was only eight months old. My parents moved uh, to first the to London and then to Edinburgh and then eventually to St. Louis, where my dad was um, doing his residency in medicine and my mother was working on her bachelor's degree. And I spent the first, really, in essence, the first six years of my life out of Kuwait and then came back uh, when I was six and, like I said, went to the American school here and then studied abroad and would always travel. We'd always, we'd go all over and then we would spend about three months of the year in the U.S. as we were growing up just for the summer. My mom would, would take us and we'd spend chunks of time there. But also my parents themselves had a very varied and cosmopolitan upbringing. My mother grew up in uh, India. There were a lot of Kuwaiti merchant families that uh, lived and worked in India and their families were there for decades and decades. And my mom was 10 years old when she moved back to Kuwait. She was born in Kuwait, but also moved with her family who were already there very young and was there. Her first language was English and Hindi. She didn't learn Arabic until she was around 10. And for me too, my first language were my first language was English and also Hindi, and then Arabic came later. Wow. Uh, for my dad, he grew up in Basra in Iraq, and he was he was about I'm trying to think he was maybe 12 when he moved back when he moved to not back moved to Kuwait. Although they had family in Kuwait, but he moved to Kuwait with his family, and then was only 16 when he moved to Vienna with his brother to study at the University of Vienna. Um, to study medicine. And for me, you know, the idea of my dad who knew Arabic and had never been, you know, he traveled maybe in, within the Middle East to Lebanon, his mother was Lebanese, but then to move to Vienna and to study at the University of Vienna and to learn German and to study medicine also in Latin and to take these oral examinations is whole, it's just astonishing to me. And to like graduate at the top of his class, um, and it's amazing, this kind of flexibility in my parents, I've always just found so admirable. And it is something they passed down to me and my sisters. We kind of absorbed it without necessarily realizing. But when I look at them, I think, well, what, what we are is just nothing by comparison when I think of the kind of, kinds of things that they encountered and did and, and kind of the flexibility that would, must have been involved for them to be able to relate and connect and just survive and all of that, you know, it's kind of crazy. But I do think that this kind of cosmopolitan background, which is not just specific to me and my family, but I think in Kuwait generally at the time, because Kuwait historically is was a port town, mm -hmm. it was very outwardly oriented in general. You had so much trade and traffic and movement across the ocean, across the Indian Ocean and and all of that created such a kind of cosmopolitan um, uh, population, from the music to the food to the language, all of that very open outward looking. And I think uh, I'm a part of that. And I think that that background is there. It's not necessarily that way anymore. And I'm not lamenting it or looking back nostalgically or sort of trying to make it something more than it is. But I do think it's a component of our historical background that I relate to and I do think, I mean, I, I kind of feel that way myself. And I think the benefit is that you never, I, I can never judge, I can't judge others, I, I can't look at other others or people, you know, that, that are from different places 
in a, in a judgmental way. Like I think I always look at things from at least two perspectives at once. Wow. And I'm so, can't be quick to, to say, well, we're better, or this is, you know, I just, I'm always, well, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't think so. And I think that kind of double and triple quadruple perspective is something that I just carry with me. And it's really hard in a way, Lisa, because it means that you, you, you don't belong. I mean, this is the one thing too about empathy that can be, I don't want to say negative, it is not a negative, but when you have the capacity to empathize and to see in more than one, from more than one perspective at one time, it also makes it hard to fit in. But that might not be a bad thing. I think maybe fitting in can be a bit overrated. Oh, I mean, I love that you just said that. And uh, yes, I agree. And um, it's crazy because I came from, you know, an entirely different background, grew up in the Northeast of the United States. My family never lived anywhere else. Um, and yet I felt so much like an outsider. I mean, partially because we were like the token Jewish family in a very white Christian town, but um, that uh, cultivating that feeling of not belonging, I, I would credit all of my creativity to that and my empathy to it because it meant that I was looking harder for connection. It meant that my antenna was up to, to deeply connect with other people. And so when I found them, I could laser in. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense because I think, yeah, I, I, I really, I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's something, there is this it, letting go of belonging, it, which is very hard to do and a lot of people can't do it. I think it takes a certain kind of strength to be able to kind of let go of the connection, not not the connections, but let's say the ties or the certainties, the identities, whatever it is that holds you in a certain place to kind of untether yourself from that. And in some ways it's about embracing homelessness in a way or being, you know, I'm using that metaphorically, but just to kind of not feel I have to have a home, but in some ways like different places, different sensibilities can become or can writing, right? So for me, writing becomes more my home than anything else people become in a sense, love, you know, I know it sounds corny, but love, connection, you know, those kinds of things become more home than the actual place or country or citizenship or whatever it is that's holding you. But, but I do think that that takes a certain degree of, of strength and um, because it isn't easy. It isn't always easy for sure. But I do, and I agree with you that creativity comes out of that. And I think again, because it's, it's a kind of flexibility, you're able to pivot, you're able to again, occupy more than one perspective. You're not, you're not, you don't take criticism, I think, as harshly too, because you're so quick to see the multiplicity or the, the multiple views of things that you're not, you're not so tied to your own. And yeah. you can say, oh, well, you know, yeah, you're right. I don't think my position necessarily is this, what I thought it was. You know, I'm, I'm always curious when I get critiqued, I'm always more curious about rather than insulted or defensive, I'm always like, well, I never thought of that quite that way. And that makes interesting it helps, sense. It helps you sort of loosen, uh, loosen your grip on the certainty of your world. And I think um, there's just such value in, but you're a citizen of the world. Your home is not necessarily um, tied to one geographical place, but is you know inside of you, which is of course, um, I, I feel like a very like Eastern spiritual idea. Um, and when you talk about, I know you use the word negative, uh, you didn't really want to use the word negative, but I see exactly what you mean, where being very 
empathetic or empathic and being able to understand everybody's point of view um, leaves you susceptible to uh, understanding the pain of so many more people. Oh um, yeah. But mm -hmm. from that pain, of course, comes transformation. So yeah. I see that negative as very positive. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it, it, but it is those, those who really are truly empathic and really do experience, you know, in, it, experience that emotional weight. It, it, is, it isn't easy. You know, it really does that. It, it really does eat up more than, and you have to have a certain kind of ability to withstand that or put up certain boundaries because it can just eat you up. And I think people that, you know, maybe creative people, um, again, I don't want to romanticize it, but I just think it kind of is the case that creative people do are perhaps more open um, to differences, to multiplicities and to others in a way that makes them more susceptible to the pain of, of the pain that comes with empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but like you said, something productive can also, you know, can come from it, but you have to be able to put up enough boundaries that you can have the space to then create something uh, productive out of it as we, as we would hope, you know, so, but I, I do think, you know, there is this other side to empathy that kind of gets left out because I do think we hear a lot about empathy as being so important in the workplace and in other places, which I couldn't agree more. And in the world that we live in politically, it is perhaps the thing that we need more than anything. You know, we need, we really do need empathy. Um, and, and yet the other, just the other side, and this isn't necessarily for, I think the, the main problem is we don't have enough empathy, not too much empathy, mm -hmm. but too much empathy, empathy is all, also sometimes um, a danger for, not a danger, but like, yeah, maybe a danger or something that can be a little bit uh, heavy for, for some mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. I mean, I think the boundaries, you nailed it with the boundaries. Yeah, the boundaries. Yeah. Needing to take a moment to uh, cultivate your own garden, as it were, um, to care for yourself, uh, especially if you're working with um, really emotional um, themes or in really difficult environments. And um, I know a, a lot of what you write about and what you um, teach is themes of um, war and gender and big heavy stuff. So I, if you would like to speak a, a little bit about, um, you know, being a, a professor, a teacher and uh, where empathy comes in and bringing these really heavy subjects to your students. I, I think that uh, when I structure the classes that I do and a lot of them are structured in a kind of comparative way because I tend to teach classes in comparative literature. So. I always try to pair certain texts together that seem like they wouldn't necessarily go together or sometimes texts that really seem like they do, they are in conversation with each other in one way or another. So for example, like in an intro to comparative literature class, I put Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale mm -hmm. side by side with Nawal Sadawi, the Egyptian writer, her, her short novella called Woman, Woman at Point Zero. Mm -hmm. And so both of these are, you know, very powerful feminist texts, but from very different places by very different authors, uh, you know, structured in, in different ways and all of that. But they, when you put them side by side and you have students read them together, they very much resonate and produce kind of interesting effects 
-hmm. in the students themselves, you know. So maybe our students, especially in this part of the world based in Kuwait, might look at, for example, Nawal Sa'dawi's novella as saying, okay, well, this, this maybe speaks a little bit, although it, it might not even to some of them, but they, will, they might think that Margaret Atwood's is, is further removed, but of course not at all. When you put them together, you really see how so much of what is in that no novel is applicable to the kind of patriarchal um, systems that are prevalent here in this part of the world and really dominate and structure a lot of our, our students' lives. I mean, I especially love it when I get a class of majority women, which happens a lot because the majority of our students are women. Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, just in the, in, at least in the English department, we have majority English, uh, majority women students. And it's a fantastic uh, dynamic to kind of not only, first of all, look at the connections between the writers themselves, but then also always apply whatever it is that we're reading about um, to the context that they're in. And it's always really productive for me to kind of have them discuss what they think is going on, whatever the books might be, and how far removed they think they are from their own lives and their own context. That, and then I kind of start bringing in things that relate to what is going on in Kuwait, whether politically, socially, I always bring it back to the political, the social, the things that are going on in the, in the papers, things that are affecting their, their own lives and then relate whatever book it is to, to all of that. That matters to me a lot. You know, I don't just, I don't like to keep whatever it is that we're reading. And it doesn't matter what time frame it is, where it is, who it is, what context. It, to me, it doesn't matter. I can always make it work um, or always make it relate to their own lives. And, and not to say that I'm making everything personal or, you know, trying to, so it's really important to me that whatever it is that I teach, they understand the context, the historical context, the specifics of the books and, um, you know, the material that we're engaging. Mm -hmm. But I always find that the students liven up when it relates back to something that's relevant to them. And I think in that way, you kind of bring the material to life. Um, and that, I think that that's kind of a good, that's a good way to use, um, you know, to use empathy in, in the classroom, you know, and then also I think it's very, you know, the dynamic also between the students themselves and that there's a kind of, you know, that they bring things in that matter to them and in relation to the text makes it more personal mm -hmm. for them to be able to connect even be amongst, you know, between each other. Um, yeah, I love that so much and I and I really appreciate your teaching style and I feel like I, I wish that all of my professors had thought that way because um, the point of uh, the point of consuming literature I think is putting yourself in the context of a continuum of experiences uh, as the reader and not just being you know it, making the focus the students and their and their lives and how they're impacted by this rather than the, the literature itself um and i i just can't tell you how many literature i classes i took specifically i'm thinking about this fitzgerald and hemingway class that i took in college that i loved very much and it inspired me to go travel and it was great but i i couldn't relate really to the to the content and the professor didn't really make an attempt to do that it became just an analytical discussion of, you know, the craft as opposed to how it was relating to the students reading it. So I, I really appreciate your way of going about that. And I, I mean, I, I think, and I really, I know it's sort of old fashioned these days to talk about craft or to talk about form 
and the aesthetics of what we're looking at, that matters a lot to me. And I think that's because, because I'm a writer and I care a lot about form. And in fact, you know, modernist writers are, are some of my favorite writers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the form really matters to me. And so we do spend a lot of time talking about all of that, um, but not in isolation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if there's a way to talk about the form and to talk about why, why this style at this particular time, you know, why, why this particular sentence structure, you know, why does this make sense in relation to whatever it is that this author is writing? So, I mean, even a more recent novel, Mohsen um, Hamid's Exit West, mm -hmm. which is, a, you know, is a really fantastic um, speculative fiction uh, novel about migration and it has this you know suddenly these portals open open up everywhere in the world and people are are able to move uh and you can't control the borders anymore because these these portals open up and you can step through and suddenly end up in a different place oh my so God. suddenly you have, yeah it's really amazing so you have people that are in a war-torn region suddenly stepping into a portal going through to sort of the most expensive area of london and there's nothing they, nothing that any police or border patrol can do about it, and it's 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 a you must read the novel. <laughs> yeah. novel, and the you know the students, and it's also beautifully it's very beautifully written, and the form is very interesting. He does a lot of things formally that that make a lot of sense in relation to the story itself, and in relation to the context of the novel, which is written at a time when migration and war and movement and the bodies of refugees and what happens and how passports matter and why perhaps they shouldn't and on and on, mm -hmm. all of that in relation to how he tells the story itself. You know, so we can, we can have a discussion about form, but very much in relation to thematics of the novel, but also in relation to the context of when the author was writing it, and then relate that to us in Kuwait, where we might think, well, what, you know, what does that have to do with me? Well, we are a country of 70% non-Kuwaiti residents. Really? Many of them, yes, many of them migrant labor, and migrant labor has, you know, the rights of migrant labor here are problematic, and this is something that students may have opinions about or also may not fully understand, you know, even the law or the legal implications. And so they may think that, well, this has nothing to do with me, only to suddenly realize, no, wait a minute, it has everything to do with me. Yeah. Not to mention just, you know, also the fact that we're located in the Middle East, which has been in the throes of migratory movement in the last few decades. So there's so much that you can link up to this book, you know, and connect, again, the aesthetics of it to the um to the thematics of it and then back to the question of the reader empathizing with what's going on in a way that they may not at first have thought had anything it was just a good book you know it's a good story yeah but then they kind of think well no there's so much more to this than that i love that you know i've been talking <laughs> a lot with uh jumana recently about um the idea of trojan horsing ideas our message in to places where we, we wanted to be and i feel this theme coming up a lot and and this is such a great example of um really compelling literature that's compelling all on its own but if you dig deeper there are there are other messages to be found there sure um, i love that um i remembered what i was going to say a million years ago um, <laughs> with regard to um uh your book that was banned um you know, oftentimes people talk about their, their creative um, 
projects as their babies, right? Or like mm. uh, having to kill your babies when you're editing things. And um, I wonder if you could speak to how that felt uh, emotionally, if you, if you, if you conceive of your, of your work that way, first of all, uh, and second of all, how it felt emotionally to have it banned and, and um, your feelings toward the government to, for doing that to your work. I felt, I do feel like my writing and my work, I don't have children. And, and I do feel that the work, my work, my writing is a kind of creative thing that, or, you know, this kind of, I don't know what to call it, a body that is so close, so much a part of me that is a kind of child in a way, you know, and I did feel very close and do feel very close to Hidden Light and to, um, and to the work that I do generally. And, but that's so funny, Lissa, when I found out, it just came out of nowhere. I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting in this restaurant, not in Kuwait. And a student of mine sent me a message saying, well, I just heard that your book was banned. And I, be I believed her immediately. And I was, because I think she sent me a link or to something. And I just felt completely, I felt almost like nothing. I felt then after I felt not disappointed, not angry, not, you know, I'm going to fight this, which many other authors did feel that and did fight and took the case to court and some of them even won. I just felt exhausted. I just felt like, do we still, are we still here at this point where we're banning books? And, and especially if anybody, you know, if anybody were to read Hidden Light of Objects, I, I find in many ways that book to be a kind of love letter to Kuwait, mm -hmm. even though it's not, I mean, it's not all about Kuwait by any means, but I think so much of it was written as a, as it, I didn't write it with that intention, but in many ways, when I think back on it, it is kind of that way that there is so much there written about Kuwait with such love um, that it felt like I just feel exhausted. I don't really want to fight and I would rather just be left alone to write. And I've, and, and that feeling has kind of stayed with me. I never inquired as to w why it was banned. I didn't try to fight it. And I, you know, I just, I wrote an essay, I wrote a personal essay about it and I published that. And it's funny for me when I do that and I publish the essay and then I just kind of let that go. And it felt to me more like this is not my problem. This is a problem that other people have to deal with. And it's not a problem that I want to spend the rest of my life fighting because I have other things to do. And if we're still here, if we're still at a stage where we're banning books, I'm not a part of that. I can't be because I only have one life. I have this one life and I have other things that I think are more important than fighting banned books. Other people can fight that fight. And that sounds, I know that that's not, that's can, that can be a controversial thing to say, especially among activists and people that I really respect and admire. But I, that is just a decision that I have, to, I had to make is that I don't have the time to be able to, to do it. I, I, I don't, but I, because I'm, t I'm also just tired of it. I'm not, it's not that I, we haven't done things to try to make things better. This comes after sort of many, many decades or de let's say decades of trying to make things better. And to have this happen, especially in a country like Kuwait, which was and was so open and it still, still remains more open than most other, part, most other countries in the region. Mm -hmm. So we still have that in Kuwait. And yet for me, is, it was, I, I always hate that comparison. Why must we compare ourselves 
to other countries in the region that are not as open, why can't we compare ourselves to places that are more open, you know, so that we um, compare ourselves in a way that's we want to aspire to better rather than worse. So that so that's why I just sort of felt, yes, I felt like my baby was um, drowned or killed, and, uh, but I felt exhausted. <laughs> basically. I, I completely honor your intuition with that because you did all the hard work of, of bringing it to life and you did your part of it. And I don't think that, yes, uh, fighting banned books is a very important uh, pursuit. Um, but it's not everybody's pursuit. There are people who, who, are, who feel their purpose is to be activists, and there are people who feel their purpose is to be creators. And, um, and uh, I respect it. And I have to tell you, um, when I read that it was banned, it made me even more excited to read it. Yeah, that's the, and you know, it's so funny. I, that is something that I hate because I feel like, again, as a, as a post-colonial scholar, it's like, why are we in this part of the world then confirming the Orientalist view of the Middle East as banning books and backwards and this and that. And it's like, it, this is so awful. And and then to become well-known or to be kind of read by people all over the world because it's a book that's banned is not necessarily the reason that you want your book to be read. I, I, I mean, I understand it and I'm, it, it's great. I mean, I'm happy that, that readers will pick it up and read it for whatever reason. But, but that to me is like the worst reason or the worst thing that comes out of a book being banned in this part of the world or art, you know, when you, you, we have so much of that. And of course it makes the art more famous. Um, and, you know, it, it defeats the purpose of the ban, which is good news, but also it just confirms this image that so much of us who are writing or creating or, you know, want to uh, oftentimes fight against is a stereotype of the Middle East as this conservative place and banning books. And it's like, must we do this still? Must we still be here? Um, I mean, I always disappoint. It's just, a, it's a disappointment and it's, you know, and that's precisely the part of the exhaustion, you know, it's just yeah. like, <laughs> no, I hear you. I, I really hear you. I think that, and I agree, you know, as somebody who also is a creative person, you want, you want your work to be received just based on the work itself and the merit of it and how it connects to people and not based on some sensational headline. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's how uh, a, a lot of things get into the limelight is based on a sensational headline. And yeah, it's not, it's not ideal. It's not ideal. Um, and, uh, but this, this brings me to the topic that we were talking about right before we got um, started with this interview, which is this idea of the US and Kuwait being very aligned in their challenges right now. Um, and how, you know, I, I've, never, I've never been to Kuwait. Um, you know, the closest I've been in the region is, is Israel. And um, it is a very different, it's a very different part of the world from the US and it's easy to spot the differences, but, um, I feel like the pandemic has really brought to light similarities here. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could talk about your experience with the pandemic and I'll chime in too. <laughs> sure, sure. So I just wrote an essay called uh, I Banish You Reflections on Kuwait, which is precisely about this topic. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, I, I think there are, there was, I, I don't even know where to begin. There's so much um, that was done wrong, but I think sort of one of the things that 
bothers me the most about how everything has gone. So Kuwait and Kuwait, our numbers remain very high and we're, we're not a huge country. We're smaller than New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, could have, I could have seen a situation in which Kuwait could have um, tackled and controlled this pandemic right at the start and we would have been in a situation like New Zealand. I, in, in writing my essay, I did not, I purposely did not compare Kuwait to any other place, not for better, not for worse. I wanted to focus specifically on Kuwait because I wanted to look at what I thought we, what, what, what I thought was, was happening here, not in relation to anybody else. But I do think Kuwait in many ways is very close to the United States and in the way that it's tackling the pandemic, not controlling the pandemic. My, pro- my, my, there are lots of things that went wrong. One of the main issues for me is the sense in Kuwait of self-entitlement and feeling there is not a real commitment from what I can observe and what I've seen of social, societal, community commitment and obligation. Mm-hmm. That the priority is you know, the individual first, I will wear my mask or not wear it as I choose. Um, I went to a ministry, I haven't been out, you know, I'm trying to be really strict about um, self-quarantining and I just have no desire to go out because I just find it scary. Mm -hmm. But I had to go to a ministry to sign some papers and in the ministry, the guy at the front desk was not wearing a mask. He was talking to people, yep. He was talking, making announcements, and we were all in the same room, a very small room with many, many people and not wearing a mask. And, you know, I went to a bank recently and also in a very small room, and I had to specifically ask the young woman, can you please wear a mask? You know, so to me, and this is, this is not just the case here. We, you know, we opened up our malls and the, you know, pictures coming out of the malls of people packed Packed. Even though the, the regulations, the government regulations are fantastic. If you read them, they're really good. But the decision to open the mall, one of the first things when our numbers were still, our positivity rate was still in 20%, is a, a bad decision, a decision based on economics, not community well-being. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, for me, the priority, like in the U.S., the priority has been self the individual's choice first, and there's a kind of stubbornness about the decisions and a very lack of care or consideration for the community. And the second thing is just the economic, uh, you know, privileging the economic, prioritizing rather the economic first. So we're gonna open all businesses, we're going to open, open, open. Um, Again, we're at a positivity rate now between 15 on a good day, but really still hovering around 20. And in two days, we're going to be opening gyms and salons and, you know, all of these high risk places. But why? I mean, again, I, you know, this, you need the government to really be care, you know, worried about uh, community well-being, but that is, hasn't happened. Meanwhile, schools are, have been shut. The government schools have been closed from March and the plan is to keep them closed until October. So Kuwait is one of the only countries in the world where students have had no online education for eight months. Um, Private schools went online immediately. Private universities went online immediately. Kuwait University, the government university, has only recently gone online. So for five months they were on paid holiday basically Um, because it was just too much to sort out. I think that that is 
a crime against the, the, young, the younger generation. Absolutely. I was listening to uh, The Daily yesterday, the New York Times podcast, um, and they were talking about uh, you know, teachers exactly. not wanting to reopen schools, but also what a terrible um, position to be in to have yeah. to choose between public health and educating and uh, educating the children and how the children might go in the U.S. might go for an entire year without school in some places. And that's terrible, but what um, it's just a choice that, that you'd think that an advanced country wouldn't be making. And I, I think you're absolutely right that it goes to this idea of rugged individualism, which of course, you know, the United States was founded upon and the United States is all manifest destiny, you know, at the expense of the lives of uh, the people who were here to begin with. And, um, and so the idea of doing anything for the sake of the community or letting the community's needs override the individual's needs is, um, you know, vile to so many people who live here, which is appalling to me because I'm like right away, what's best for the community? And I think that comes from having a mindset, um, an empathetic mindset um, where the well-being of those around me is just as important to me as my own well-being. You know? Absolutely. That is so well put. I mean, that is exactly what it takes is that you need to be empathetic to everyone around you and then do what's best for everyone and not, not put yourself first. You know, this idea that, well, you're wearing a mask. So who, what do you care about me? Well, no, I'm wearing my mask for you. Right. You should wear your mask for me. You know, that kind of inability to understand that or just to understand it and not care is I really feel like this is the, you, I, and I'm sure this is, we've seen examples of the rage that people feel one way or another um, in response to wearing or not wearing the mask, where, which I think is like, really, I, again, like exactly exact like banning the books, you know, you feel like really we're still here. We're still <laughs> here. And I mean, why is this even an issue? This should be the, no, this is not the issue that we need to be focusing on. And for example, if we kept in Kuwait, I don't know if this is true. I'm not an expert, but what I can imagine is if we had pr prioritized education over business. So we kept the malls closed and the car showrooms and the gyms and salons and whatever else supported those businesses in the best ways that we could, but we didn't open them up the way that we did. Maybe education wouldn't have been the last priority, which is right. exactly what it is. Right. Like the education is the last priority right now in Kuwait. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, the challenge of, uh, of having money in corporations be more important than the human beings that they're meant to serve. Um, yes. And again, because, I mean, again, in other places where we witness this situation working is because people do have this community sense that we're not, we don't even need rules. We don't even need governmental rules because we're going to do it anyway, because we know that that is going to be what's best for the community in the, in the, in the, not even the long term, in the short term. It's, it wasn't impossible to get the situation under control if everyone followed the rules first, rather than waiting until it became uncontrollable. Right. And still, still not following the rules, you know. So um, in terms of empathy, that the, one of the things that's in my mind really um, powerfully is because my, my sister is, a, you know, she's a working mother, she's an academic, her husband is working full-time as well, and they have two kids. And the lack of empathy for parents mm -hmm. and mothers, especially in the midst of this pandemic, where you have young kids, and if you're 
lucky enough to be able to have a school that's going to be going online, you're going to have to consider how you're going to manage two young kids um, teaching and then your own work teaching or doing whatever it is that you do. If you can stay home, so her husband can't even stay home because they're, you know, the businesses are, some businesses are opening up completely. Right. And how the workforce, so never mind the education system, the workforce has been completely unsympathetic and inflexible to parents. Yeah. And it's just, it, it really, there's no empathy whatsoever for parents, and especially, I think, for mothers. And a lot has been written about this, especially in the US, I know that the burden of so much of this, even with great fathers, the burden of so much of what's happening is going to fall on the shoulders of mothers and women. Yeah. And it's just, that to me is just incredibly heartbreaking. And where is the empathy? You know, where is the empathy for, for, for people at work who have kids, you know, and who are working full time and have to manage, it's an impossible situation to be put in. I agree. I agree. And I'm very, you know, I, I don't have children of my own and, and I'm grateful that I don't have to make that sort of gut-wrenching decision. And um, it, it does feel, it does feel in a way that we're being thrust backwards in time, you know, to a place when that burden was on the, on women, you know, substantially, and that women had to choose between, you know, their domestic duties and having a career. Um, but I, I really think, and, and maybe I'm Pollyanna about this, um, but I really think that all of this is stuff that needs to bubble to the top and rear its head so it can be skimmed off. I, I really think that on the other side of this catastrophe in the world, it's going to, be, we're gonna have brand new systems. We're gonna have to build brand new systems. I'm actually optimistic about the US. Oh, really? As out, from the outside looking in, um, I, so I feel like, yes, you're absolutely right. Things are bubbling to the top in the US on all fronts, on all, in so many different um, areas. And I do feel things are coming to a head in a way in, in, this, in the US, but I see so much productivity, like so much that's productive and active uh, happening at the same time as all the negative stuff that we're also obviously seeing that I do feel much more hopeful exactly as you said I think systems will be it may not happen overnight but I, I don't think it's not going to happen because I also think there's a young a younger generation right now that isn't asking anyone's permission to get things done yes and, you know they're just we're like well we're, we're done with all of this so we're moving on we're moving right ahead you know so and I think that will continue to happen again it will not be I don't see the pandemic as this kind of dream situation that's going to solve, you know, many people think, well, this is going to help us with the environment or it's going to help change this and that. I don't think it, it necessarily will be fantastic and great for everything, but I see in the U.S. that there's some, there is change happening in a way that looks like it's, I also like you feel more positive about it. Now, I don't know, and maybe that's because I'm here and I'm not on the outside looking in, I don't feel the same way about Kuwait because I don't see the same kind of activism and uh, people being as upset as everyone, as so many in the US are yeah. about things that they see and are identifying and want to change and are writing about and all of the stuff that as much negative is happening, there's positive pushing back against it. And I just don't see that here as much. Yeah. And that's what worries me, you know, that's what depresses me because I feel that there are some, there are few, there are few lone voices and, but we are in such a minority 
that I'm not convinced that we're necessarily going to come out of the other side in the same way that I see the U.S. coming out of it. Yeah. But again, I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I hear you. And what I will say is that your, your region of the world has gone through so much conflict for thousands of years. And this is just another point of conflict. And you and your voice are a, a really bright and important point uh, in that. And I, I'm not saying that I, I imagine it to be easy to live there or to, you know, to imagine how it's going to turn out. But um, but I have faith in um, the creatives who come from that region because I know that you have to climb or like jump so many more hurdles than say someone from the U.S. So uh, it makes me it makes me optimistic to know that people like you exist. Oh, that's that's so kind and so generous of you to say, Lisa, and that it does. Um, it, it's it's nice to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I, it has been such a delight talking to you. This is lovely. I could talk to you all day. Um, and I, I wonder uh, if there's anything that you, that you want to share um, before we close out. No, it's been an absolute pleasure for me too. And I'm just, I'm so happy that you're engaged with uh, discussing all of these issues, which are really, really important and often overlooked. So um, I'm really happy to have had a chance to chat with you about some of these things thank you so much oh, thank you thank you thanks for tuning in to episode eight of what's betwixt us stories of working while human to learn more about may and to read some of her beautiful work please visit mayalnakib.com that's m-a-i-a-l-n-a-k-i-b.com what's betwixt us is powered by zany designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E dot A-P-P. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.